and gentlemen, I'm JC, uh, all the way up in New York, chiming in on the program here today, co-host of the HR Talk podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, we do have a very special podcast ahead of us today. Before I get into that, though, we have someone who means the world to our daily lives, a man who has many names, but a man who is proud to be on this program. As your co-host, your key host, your keyhole host, your whole host, Ricky Bias. Oh, I got my own weird intro music. Yes, sir. I love it, man. That is awesome. It's a little bit of an America mashup right there. Taking a little bit from uh, two different songs that has something to do with America. Smash them together. And we get a little oh, Ricky Baez intro. There we go. There we Love go. <laughs> Ricky Baez, ladies and gentlemen. One minute, 35 seconds into the program. The gentleman is finally here. Ricky, how you doing today, brother? Welcome back. Thank you, man. Bro, I miss this, man. I miss being, you know, just going back and forth and being on the podcast because you've been on assignment. I've been on assignment. We've been busy, huh? Very. We have. We have been busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, hilarious. some of us, some of us, all of us. All I don't know. You seem to always be cooking food and putting pictures out of that. And let me tell you something, brother. The internet appreciates you for all that you do in the world of chow. That's oh. all I got to say. Thank you. Appreciate it. What yeah, you been cooking? You, you've been cooking like steaks and good stuff, right? Yeah, man. I stopped for a while. Uh, work got a little bit busy. It's getting busier, but uh, I decided to bust out the grill. Um, it's almost October, and you you would think that the weather would get a little bit better and uh, it, it, it will get cooler to give us some kind of resemblance of fall. But nope, it's still the dead of summer. It was 100 degrees yesterday. <laughs> 100 degrees yesterday in Orlando. What in the world is going on? Global warming is real. We feel it in the summertime. Well, talking about other strange anomalies, I got one for you. You ready? Uh oh. Yeah, yeah. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Yeah, man. Today, um, we have a home run uh, to debut immediately for everyone here. And this is so critically important to get this interview out in a timely manner, Rick. The, uh, the presidential debates are this week. We have a lot going on in the world of leadership in re, uh, reforming the world of the way CEOs, leaders, managers think, react, and, and how they interact with other people within their organizations. And this individual that's on the program today kind of brings a lot to the table when we're talking about personality traits and also presidential elections. That's right. And this is the gentleman who's been on the show before. And uh, we it's I'm just so excited to have him back. Exactly how you said, JC, this is very, very timely. And he has a new book out. Uh, the person we're talking about is Mr. Merrick Rosenberg, CEO of Take Flight Learning. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Well, you know about him. I know about him, but the audience may not. So he's the author of Personality Wins, Who Will Take the White House and How We Know and the Chameleon. Life-changing wisdoms of anyone who has a personality or knows someone who does. <laughs> <laughs> His books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and IndieBound. Just, you know what, whenever you go to a place 
that gives you a book and you give it cash, I'm pretty sure his book is going to be there. But a little bit more about Merrick. So Rosenberg co-founded Team Builders Plus in 1991 and Take Flight Learning in 2012. He is the author of all of these books that I just mentioned. Um, he is a personality expert who has worked with more than 10, oh no, not 10, 100,000 people. I almost said 10 people um, at more than half of the Fortune 100 companies. So that's more than 50. Got it. OK. In the in the U.S. and around the world, under his leadership as CEO of Take Flight Learning, his company has been selected as the New Jersey Business of the Year and named one of the fastest growing companies and best places to work in the Philadelphia area. Merrick received his MBA from Drexel University, who recognized him as the Alumni Entrepreneur of the Year. He also has a BA in political communications from George Washington University. JC, dude, I think this has got to be the most prolific uh, a guest we've had on the show. It's got to Ricky, be, right? Ricky, it really, really is. And, and as you know, as the listeners know, we don't really try to get into politics too much at all. Like, we dance around topics, but today we are going directly into personality traits and directly into presidential elections with with some really amazing data. I don't want to give too much away. So you really think – now, I'm getting this book. I haven't read it. I am going to get it. Um, He did mention this before, and I'm really curious on how – I guess nitpicking on people's personalities, you'll be able to predict an election. That's really interesting. Well, I don't want to necessarily call it nitpicking, Rick. I mean, this really comes down to uh, uh, well, analyzing, some, analyzing. Yeah, I mean, it comes yeah. down to that disc personality set and the specific spin that he puts on it. Tell you what, I had a chance to sit down with him for one hour. Why don't you listen to this interview that we had offline? And then when we come back momentarily, you tell me what you think. OK, all right. Let me go get my coffee. Merrick, I can't thank you enough for being back here on HR Talk. It truly has been a pleasure having you on the program before, making that promise to have you back. And now, as the elections are upon us, you've agreed to come back on. Can't thank you enough for being here, sir. Happy to be here. You know, when we're talking about personality traits and styles and everything like that, we're going to get knee deep in on that today. But if you could, please, ultimately, from a high level, we're going to be looking to, to help us have a better understanding of how the personality of the candidates in the 2020 election affects their electability at the end of the day. And this is spurred and spun directly from this new book that you have out right now, Personality Wins. Is that right? That's correct. Now, when I go online and I take a look at Amazon and some of the other stuff out there, we're talking five stars across the board. Books are still flying off the shelves. You know it's a good sell when you can even find the used book available out there you know that's right (laughs) (laughs) what what a better time so things have been going good in regards to the book sales etc oh yeah we're having fun i've just been out there talking to a lot of people i mean if there's any topic that's interesting it's ourselves and if we can relate that to another topic that's interesting which is the presidential election then hey it's a good day now you've written three books so far about personality if you could please just provide a real quick overview since you are the resident expert in like the entire United States on everything that has to do with the personality styles, that disc personality style, what what are these four styles? So crash course, we've got four birds. I tried to make it easy. You know, there's this alphabet soup out there. Nobody remembers that. So tried to make it simple. We've got eagles. Eagles are confident. They are direct, assertive 
take charge. You've got parrots. Look at that big smile. They're fun. They're energetic. They're charismatic. They're optimistic. Uh, they bring a lot of excitement wherever they go. You've got the dove. Uh, you can see the head tilt. That's the, oh, just, you know, they just, they're there for you. Yes. Compassionate, caring, uh, harmonious. They want everyone to get along. And the owl, logical, analytical, thoughtful. They've got a process. They've got a system. They've got a plan for everything they do. Uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, people are only one of these styles or the other, right? We They can't be blended. No, no you're, you're a combination of all four. My, my style, I'm a parrot with some secondary eagle. Uh, most people have one or two that are pretty dominant for them, though everybody's got a little of everything in them, of course, but but you probably have one or two that are pretty strong for you. All right, so if we're thinking outside of uh, just ourselves for a moment, if we take uh, pop culture, what are some examples of these four different styles, please? So I'll, I'll show you how simple it is. We'll, we'll, we'll put you to the test. Are you ready? All right, let's, let's try. Let's do it. All right, how about somebody like an Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, definitely seems a little bit more like an eagle. In my That's opinion. right, exactly. How about somebody, maybe like a Jimmy Fallon or a Kevin Hart? What do you think? Uh, definitely not an owl. Have to say a bit more of the parrot, if if we're thinking logically Perfect. here. Okay. That's right. That's right. How about maybe go in the business world, a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett? Uh, is there a vulture or a hawk? Is that part of this? No, that's not part of this. That's right. All right. A, a Warren Buffett, a Bill Gates. Definitely, uh, I don't think of Bill Gates or, or Warren Buffett as being necessarily compassionate i would have to put them more like an owl a little more logical and analytical exactly exactly someone like uh you know mr rogers that we had uh tom hanks played him recently in the movie we got mr rogers or or maybe a, a mother Teresa. what do you think uh we definitely have our dove right there absolutely and that's how you do it uh, even after just a moment of just talking about them you can see the energy of the styles and you look at somebody and you, you'd say all right that is an eagle that's a parrot it's pretty simple to do. When we're thinking about the presidential candidates and we think about this book, there's a lot on the table when it comes to personality, actual or perceived personality as well. And when we yeah. attempt to apply these personality traits directly to these candidates, how, how do you go about doing that, Merrick? So there's a couple of things that I did. One, a lot of those, a lot of the presidential candidates throughout history, you could just look at them and say, I got it. You, you'd look at an LBJ and there's so much eagle energy. You look at a Bill Clinton, there's so much parrot or JFK. But I didn't stop there. Uh, my, actually, my undergraduate degree is in political communications. So I, my parents were very happy that, hey, I'm using it. What a great day. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I went back. The, the beautiful thing about presidents is that People who work with presidents often write books about the presidents, and they describe them. And you can you could look at them and see video footage. You can hear them in interviews. You can see what they've said, and you can see what they've written. And when you look at somebody like an Eisenhower, and they you hear people say, "But a a gentle, compassionate, caring person," it just says, "Well, there's a lot of dove words." And you look at somebody like a uh, uh, I mentioned Lyndon Baines Johnson. When you hear words like bully and blunt and direct you'd say you know that's probably the eagle maybe dialed up a little bit now, and so now if i may though pretty easy. It, when, we, when we think about someone like jfk if it, going back a few years you're talking about a blend of personality traits and styles right there that might be a little bit hard to define some may have perceived him a little bit more as a eagle where others viewed him as a dove yeah, well, what was interesting about him was that he really, to the public, conveyed a lot of parrot energy, that big, 
charismatic, electric smile. But behind the scenes, people talked about him as an eagle. He would just make quick decisions. Uh, it, it, you know, it, sometimes what we see in the public eye isn't always what's playing out behind the scenes. So we get, I got a lot of both perspectives. George W. Bush was an example of that too. Very eagle in public. Uh, I'm the decider. Mission accomplished. I and mean, these are eagle statements. Yes. But behind the scenes, everybody was like, eh, he's the kind of guy you'd want to have a beer with. He's real relaxed and he, he's a great guy. But he didn't always show that parrot to the public, but we saw the eagle president in him. Was Reagan a parrot or was Reagan a dove? Not, not as much dove. He had, he had a lot of parrot energy. Reagan was, was amazing because as the great communicator himself, he could actually display all four of them equally well. And, and that is what makes broad appeal. Clinton did the same thing. You can see somebody like a Reagan who standing at the Berlin Wall and is saying, tear down this wall. That is so eagle. Uh, he, he's getting wheeled into an operating room. He was just shot. And he's joking with the doctors saying, I hope you're Republicans. I mean, the guy was just shot. And he's, he's a parrot. Uh, when the Challenger exploded, he gave such a heartfelt speech, uh, so almost grandfatherly and compassionate and caring, so dove. Uh, and he shared a lot of statistics out on the campaign trail. And it, when you look at someone like a Reagan, yeah, I think he was the parrot. Uh, and that was his core style. But he had an ability to display any of them. And when you have that level of flexibility, that's powerful because it gives you a broad appeal, the ability to connect with anyone. Now, media can play a large role in the perception of a person. We know this. Let it be mainstream media, social media, and the like. Can someone, and and you just mentioned, you know, the public versus private, how, how these presidents may have been perceived publicly, but privately they were slightly different. Can someone be different at work behind that desk versus the way that they're perceived through the various media sources? Yeah, absolutely. And we have that in our personal lives, too. Sometimes we display behaviors in the workplace that we may not display at home. I think a lot of people have been very surprised as throughout this quarantine and throughout the lockdown of of COVID-19, seeing their spouse and they're like, who, who is this person? <laughs> You're seeing a version of them they have never seen before. Yes. And, and because that's their work personality and they don't bring the work personality home. But now their work personality is in their home office and they're watching it. Uh, and so it is absolutely true that sometimes we display different behaviors on the job than we may display at home. Talking about the voters, don't voters care more about a candidate's platform than their personality? Or are presidential elections really just personality contest or who looks better or has the best buzzword of the week? So so here was the insight that that drove me to write this book that, that, that prompted me to write personality wins. I, I was looking at the candidates and I had this observation and I, I wondered, would big energy personalities of an eagle and a parrot, would they beat the more reserved doves and the owls? They're more introverted. They're more reserved. Does that big energy matter on a big stage, on the presidential campaign trail? And the reality was I started working back in time. And I was like, hey, it works through the 2000s. Yeah, eagles and parrots beat doves and owls. It works in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 70s, in the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s. I made it all the way back to 1932, 22 elections in a row where eagles and parrots, they were going against a dove or an owl, They won every single time. The only time 
doves and owls won the presidency in 22 elections in a row is if they were going against the dove or owl. And I'll give you an example. Jimmy Carter. Okay, he is the dove. He's humanitarian. He's even after being president, he's he's building homes. He's making sure elections are fair. He's he's help, making sure around the world people are healthy. He's doing all these things. So compassionate, so dove. He won the presidency going against Ford, another dove. But then you put him against Reagan's charismatic parrot. Game over. Different ball of wax. Same, yeah. yeah. Same thing happened to George H. W. Bush. Okay, he's an owl. He beat Dukakis fellow owl, but then he goes against Bill Clinton's charismatic, you know, energy and, and smile. He was a rock star and the owl just doesn't win. And this happened over and over. Parrots and eagles win the election, win the president. So when we're thinking about that movie Moneyball, you've seen that, right? They get down to sure. qualitative and quantitative analysis. They're, they're looking at stats. They're making big moves based on that. And it's a statistics. It's, it's a huge thing in the world of sports. And some do say politics is a game of sport uh, to a point for, for some and for many. And when we think back past that that point where you could prove that after 22 times, so th- th- there's, a, there's a trend there that can't be beat, of course. But yeah, if, 22 is not a, a coincidence. Yeah, no, not at all. Before that, though, what's that differential? Why, why does it change at a certain point in time in history? So there was a major tipping point. At the 1928 election, prior to that point, owls and doves won all the time, and they consistently beat the parrots and the eagles. The first five presidents of the United States, you got Washington and Adams and Jefferson. These were a group of five owls. The six presidents prior to the Civil War were all doves, including Lincoln. So how are they consistently winning? And they were beating eagles and parrots. What? So here's the here's the big question. What happened in 1932 that would cause somebody with a big personality to win the election? Somebody like FDR out there on the campaign trail. What changed in that moment? What do you think? Wasn't it the fact that he started debuting in in movies and dancing or something? No, no, bad joke. Bad joke there. No, but like the uh, the, the media, right? I mean, we're talking radio and then emergence of TV, right? That's right. 60 million people could hear a fireside chat with FDR and his booming voice, that eagle parrot style that he had yeah. was so dominating over Hoover's owl. And Hoover was an owl. He won a previous election. But now here comes radio. And then you get into the, to the 1960. And this is the first time that now we're going to see a debate on on television. And here comes here comes Kennedy. Here comes JFK. And he has got this big smile and he looks great and he is the parrot and he's charismatic and he's laughing and he's joking and then out walks richard nixon who the world knew he was the vice president for eight years like we don't necessarily think about that now but he wasn't coming out of nowhere he was well known he was the vp for eight years under eisenhower and all of a sudden eagle i'm sorry parrot versus owl Boy, once TV came into being, it was really hard for for owls and doves. And now we have social media and parrots and eagles. They love sound bites. They love quick hits where they can just be be showing themselves doing something great with not a lot of detail, but they've got a great one liner. Yes. Owls have a hard time explaining their platform in a tweet. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was selling shirts that said Warren has a plan for that. And this was also 
Hillary's problem as well is that she spoke in statistics and plans and data and plans and data just don't excite people. And so prior to 1932, where did we learn about candidates? In the newspaper where they looked and sounded intelligent. We can read their platform. We can understand what they wanted to implement. And after that, it became much more visual, uh, much more auditory uh, and big personalities win. It's hard to imagine waiting around for that telegram with the news or that paper to be printed with news that's two to three weeks old. It's it, the thought of, of what it used to be is so vastly different from where we are now. When we and, think and of President, yeah, President, you have Trump who can reach the world at two in the morning with a tweet and can say can instantly doesn't even need to wait for the news to cover him. Yes. It's in the hands of everybody. Direct communication. Uh, talking about those voters, talking about direct communication, what are voters looking for, ultimately, at the end of the day, in the personalities of these candidates? What, what, what's that overarching you, you Once again, you would hope that they're voting for policy and platform and their, their ideology, but in reality, they, they seem to be going for that big energy confidence of an eagle and that charisma of the parrot. And especially when you have that parrot and eagle combo. People like a, a Reagan or a JFK or a, a Bill Clinton or an FDR. And by the way, I just named the four presidents who are the only parrot eagle combos who were, had the four highest Gallup approval ratings of any president in history. <laughs> and they, so well, there's something about it. Not only do they get elected, but then once they're elected, people like them. So, so that parrot eagle combo is powerful. So personality is just all about likability at the end of the day. It is. It really is. I mean, look, 22 elections in a row would tell us it's about likability. And and people ask me, they say, but what about, you know, people who are just clearly going to vote Republican or clearly going to vote Democrat? And I'd say, absolutely, there are those people where personality doesn't matter. But about a third of the people in the middle can swing and they can go in either direction. And those people are tuning into personality and they're the ones who decide the election. Of course, we have to have voter turnout for the people who are strongly on, on one side or the other, but it's those people in the middle that are looking at who do I like? And that's what's deciding elections. For anyone that has not yet read the book, which after this interview, they most absolutely should get out there and, and grab themselves a copy in my personal opinion here. And we may have touched on this just a little bit, but please directly speaking about the big assumption it's, it's something you mentioned in the book. Can you yeah, talk so about that? Yeah, the big assumption is if it's important to me, then I assume it's important to you. So in other words, if I'm an owl, plans and data and details and specifics are very important to me. So I'm going to share all of those with the electorate. If I'm a dove, values are important to me. We heard Jimmy Carter talked a lot about his values. Pete Buttigieg in this election talked a lot about his values. Joe Biden's dub is really prominent in this election, and he's talking about the soul of the nation. And, and this is what we're seeing is if it's important to you, you believe it's important to everyone. That works against the owls and dubs because what's important to them, details, plans, and values aren't what people vote for. Eagles and parrots, what's important to them? Big picture, energy, charisma, and excitement. So Bernie Sanders shows up to a big rally and he generates passion. Donald Trump shows up to big rally and he generates excitement. And so the big assumption, ironically, actually works for eagles and parrots because they assume people don't want details, so they don't give them, and that helps them. So if you have a candidate with a 
blend of personalities to a point where it's it's not necessarily a fault, but to their benefit, they lean a little bit more towards being a dove or an owl. But they have a campaign speechwriter who is a strong eagle. They're very confident on that campaign. You stick to this message, you do it this way, and they write that script. And that script goes up on the teleprompter, and they're reading it verbatim, word for word. And from our perception, we're thinking that they're sticking to that script. That teleprompter. Is the speechwriter really the one that's that's in control there? Can the personality of the candidate yeah. shine through? Well, here, here's the thing. Ronald Reagan was like was a parrot. He he had so much charisma, and and yes, they could write statistics into his speeches. But in the end, he was going to be a funny guy, and you could write uh, eagle language for George H. W. Bush, but he just couldn't deliver it. Right. I mean, he used to talk about I don't get the, what he called the vision thing. He he just couldn't even speak the language. He it's like to him, he's like the vision thing. Yeah, you know who got the vision thing? Bill Clinton. And when he went up against him, he crushed him. And and so that's the challenge is that speechwriters tend to write in the voice of the person they are writing for because they that person won't be comfortable speaking in a different voice, well, speaking in a style that's not their own. Successful speechwriters. <laughs> well, yeah, but but I don't think a candidate is going to be is gonna be happy reading. But that's not, not me. Look at it. See, that's, I, I can't read that. Yeah. That isn't me. And so, so you you have to find the voice of the candidate. And and besides, just the speeches at a at, at a rally or the speeches at a State of the Union address. When people are running for for president, they're they're on the stump. They're showing up in diners. They're showing up on a gazebo in a town square. It would be very difficult to live out of your personality and display behaviors that aren't really you 24-7 because they're, they're, there's a camera on them almost every minute of the day until they shut that hotel room door behind them. And and they can't work out of their personality. And so we see who they are. It's going yeah. to shine through. Yeah. When when we're thinking about... Uh, <laughs> this this part's crazy. The The battle for supremacy, as you've mentioned over time, when, when you have candidate A and candidate B facing each other, and now you have that winning personality trait stepping up on stage and, and taking the reins, can can that winning personality style that they have in this face-off, so to speak, if it, it, going back to like JFK Nixon, uh, for example, could a winning personality style ever work against them? Uh, that doesn't work in this example of JFK and Nixon, yeah. of course, but... Right, right. It does. It, what happens for people is that when we use our strengths, we and we live within the strengths of our personality, it drives our success. But when we overuse our strengths, it becomes our weakness. So you take take let's take the eagle for example. So you've got this eagle style. Eagles are confident. They are assertive. They're direct. But if you dial up any of those, it becomes a weakness. Dial up confidence, it can become arrogance. It can become dial it up more, becomes narcissism. Take directness and candor, very respectable. Dial it up more and it becomes blunt insensitivity and you're offending people. And so, so when you take your strength and you dial it up too much, it can become a weakness. Take the parrot. Yes. Uh, it, it, if they dial up 
their their energy and enthusiasm. Remember this moment, it was years ago, Howard Dean had this one moment where he lets out this like yell, this scream. <laughs> yeah! He got so into yes, it. He yes. was so excited. Everyone remembers that. That was it. That was it was like game over after that. He dialed right. his power up just a little too much and it worked against him. And so when you use your strengths, they help you. But when you're overusing your strength, what was your greatest asset has now become your greatest liability. This next week, we will be seeing the candidates face off in the debates for the first time here in 2020. Polls obviously change second to second. And it really depends on who you're polling at the same time, too, of course, right? But especially after a debate, those polls could swing. We may see that immediate shift in in the poll numbers after this first debate right here. And when people watch these debates, don't they just ultimately tune into what the candidates say that they will do? You would hope so. But, but you know, there's so many moments in debates that were defining moments for people that for some of them ended their campaign right on the spot. Their, Dukakis had a moment like that. Rick Perry had a moment like that, like right on the spot, just ended their campaign because they said something that just was like, okay, that's too far. I, or you just made a mistake. I totally forgot about Perry until you just mentioned that. You're right. Yeah, he was Perry, a front Perry, runner, I believe, at the time. Yeah, he was he he was he was running for president and he gets up there and he's just like, and there are three departments I'm going to eliminate. Number one, and he names it. Number two, and he names it. Number three. And he couldn't remember it. And he just looked like you're, you're so out of touch. You can't even remember your three three things, your departments you're going to eliminate. And it just, he was done in that moment. But you also have those moments uh, where like Ronald Reagan, at the time, he was the oldest person to be president, oldest, oldest person or running for president. And he, yes. he turns to, uh, he, he turns to um, Mondale. The, the interviewer had asked him about his age and, you know, is he kind of in intimating that he's too old to run for president. But he had said something like, you know, his age and issue. And Reagan, remember, I'll paraphrase here, but where he had turned to, to Mondale and basically said, I will not let his youth and inexperience become a part of this camp. You know, I'm not going to pick on that. <laughs> you know? so, so, you know, it's this idea that you can have these incredible moments. But I will tell you, if you watch what's watch this debate, what's coming up, it's going to be fascinating if you're paying attention to personality. Because we've got Donald Trump, right? Clearly yes. a dove, right? All right, not the dove. <laughs> Clearly an eagle. We get it. He is an eagle. So he's got an eagle. Eagles attack. And not only, you, I will be willing to bet, he's not only going to attack Joe Biden, he will probably attack the interviewer if he doesn't like the question. Uh, he's going to, that's what eagles do. Eagles attack. And and we watched him do it when he was debating other other Republicans. We watched him do it with Hillary. And he's going to be in eagle attack mode. But here we have Joe Biden. Throughout his career, overwhelmingly, he's been the parrot. Big smile, big energy, talks with everyone. Everyone has a story. I mean, the Democratic convention was, and he's just a nice guy. That was the theme of the convention. If there were one word to capture the the essence of that convention, it was empathy. They were really doubling down on that that empathy that Joe Biden exudes. In a sense, they're focusing on his dove style. I think they're trying to show an empathy gap between between the eagle. Who eagles don't often demonstrate empathy. It doesn't mean they don't care, but they don't often show empathy. Right, and they're right. they're playing off of of Trump's lack you know lack of displaying empathy to the world. And yet here's Joe Biden, who's just 
clearly one of the most empathetic guys you want to meet. Talking about personality styles in that regard, when we think about like the past week with the uh, passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and we saw some of the videos of of President Trump out there, um, it was like an immediate shift. He, He went from an eagle personality to a dove within a heartbeat. Uh, on on the tarmac being interviewed by some reporters where conversely when they flipped over to uh, vice president biden uh, at that at that moment he he went more owl he was more analytical and and, and logical yeah. with things it, it was a interesting shift uh, that was directed off of immediate news showing their instant personality traits on the spot. I, w- I was a little blown away by that, Merrick. Yeah, and, 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 you know, it just shows that you can display any style. We have all of them in us. Uh, and, and it's going to be interesting to watch, especially as we watch them together on a stage. Will, will Joe Biden focus on empathy and, 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 and talk about the heart of the nation and the soul of the nation and, and our values? And, um, and you'll watch, inevitably, uh, Donald Trump will be focusing on big picture goals. Here's what we're going to accomplish. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, and it'll, it'll be a difference in just the way they they speak and the way they approach each other. Ultimately, does character matter in presidential elections? We'd like to think it does. But I got to tell you, we elected a guy. His nickname was Tricky Dick. We elected <laughs> another one. His name was Slick Willie. Did it matter? Didn't matter. We still elected them. Uh, you know, Character matters in our personal relationships. If you are going to get married or you're going and you're, you're and you met somebody and I said, all right, look, here's what I've been doing. I've been, been following her around and I've been, been tracking. And, you know, here's the thing. She lies about 20 percent of the time. But I got to tell you, she's honest 80 percent of the time. Would you want to marry someone who lies 20 percent of the time? Probably not. But if I said to you, hey, here's a politician, they're truthful 80 percent of the time. You're like, huh, that's that's pretty good. We'll take it. Uh, we almost have an expectation that they're not going to always be truthful right. and we give them a pass on character and it just doesn't really matter. I, I mean, we, we would care about it in our personal relationships. It's not as much of a variable uh, in presidential elections. 80% of the time they're right. Every time. Can you see a candidate's personality in their slogan? Is, is that a thing? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, every, it, every, Eagle has a action verb that starts their their slogan. I mean, it's so funny. I'll, I'll give you a slogan from from uh, 1980, uh, and it was Ronald Reagan's slogan: "Let's make America great again." A lot of people don't remember that was his slogan. Let's, but do you hear that word? Let's change Major America sense. great again. Right, changes the whole feeling, doesn't it? Let's is very inclusive. It's it's it, let's do it together. That's very parrot. We're a team. Let's go. But when you remove the word let's. It becomes a command. Make America great again. And that's very eagle. There, there was another one which I loved, which was um, we had Goldwater, who was very parrot. Uh, and, and he, you know, he just he, he, he was, you know, if you think about parrots, parrots make gut decisions. And he captured that in his slogan. And his slogan was um, uh, in your uh, what was it in your heart? you know, he's, uh, you know, he's right. Okay. So it's like this kind of like in your heart, you know, he's right. That's, that was Goldwater's slogan. Yeah. So LBJ, who is like total Eagle, it, it was discovered that Goldwater had, had gone to a therapist, which at that time was very stigmatized. It's not like today. It was like, Oh my God, if he went to a therapist, is something wrong with him? Right, like that right, was right. that era. And so, so, 
So in your in your heart, you know he's right. That was that became Goldwater's slogan. You know what 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 uh, LBJ turned that into? This was LBJ's slogan. In, in your guts, you know he's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, he's and like, the, I'm going to attack him. And the eagle swoops in. <laughs> and I'm going to attack and just, boom, I'm in there. And you can see the style like in their, in their slogans. It's so funny to watch how, how, how you see it. We get pulled apart into so many different little buckets and bins nowadays. And it doesn't matter if it's personal perception or your perception is strong from media or whatever the case may be. But there are extremes pulling at us constantly. doesn't matter what your scenario is. When we think about extreme ideologies, does personality really matter for those voters? At the ends of the continuum, there are those voters, it does not matter. It doesn't matter if you're on the, the blue team you and you're strongly on the blue team, you're voting for the Democrat. If you are strongly on the red team, you're voting for or the Republican or the red team is, I mean, you clearly can see it. Right. And, right. and, and, and it doesn't really make a difference at the ends of those continuums, but it's, it's more those people that are towards the center where it really does matter. And, and we hear about them all the time. We see swing States. This is where, look, this is where the, the, the election is spending their money. They're spending their money. If you live in a swing state, if you live in Ohio or Michigan or Florida, you are, you are seeing a ton of presidential commercials. If you're living in California, they, they know who's, they know where that state's going. They know where those electoral college votes are going. There's no need for either party to spend a lot of money on, on commercials there. And so, so at those extremes, it doesn't matter, but personality really makes a difference for those people who are in the middle because they're trying to decide who they like. And, and, you know, we see people, we saw this a lot with like Elizabeth Warren, where people said, I just don't, there were a lot of people who said, I just don't like her. And, and it's like, well, what if you like her, her, her beliefs, her philosophy, her ideology, her platform, they'd still not vote for her because they said, I don't know, there's just something about her. And it's like, yeah, what you're really saying is you're voting for personality. 2016. How did personality play a role back then? And why were they so polarizing? It was probably the most polarizing election we've, we've ever seen. And so we had someone, we had Donald Trump, someone who's an eagle, who stays in eagle mode almost 100% of the time. We have Hillary Clinton, who stays in owl mode almost 100% of the time. Remember when I described how, how Reagan could just, he could be an eagle, a parrot, a dove, and now he could just connect with everyone? Yes. Well, when you display all four styles, you connect with everyone. But when you stay in just one style, you're just not as likable and you're not as relatable because you don't connect with everyone. And, and we saw that. We saw two people who were just so stuck in their styles. They lacked style flexibility. I say this in corporations all the time when I go into companies. Leaders with the most flexibility, with the most adaptability are the most successful. And they both lacked it. And, and it hurt them because they, they didn't create a lot of energy behind them uh, on the other side. You saw people like Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan who had so much flexibility that they had the Reagan Democrats. There were Republicans who voted for, for Bill Clinton who never voted for a Democrat in their lives. And they just generated excitement and enthusiasm. But Trump and Hillary, because they're so stuck in their style, they created a very polarized uh, electorate. How does Trump's personality help him? And 
How does it hurt him when we're thinking about the 2020 candidates that are in front of us right now? Clearly, his personality is what drives his success. It's it's what's built his success throughout his career. Uh, it built his success on on uh, The Apprentice, on You're Fired. I mean, can you imagine a dove saying, you're fired? They would never do that. They <laughs> no. would be like, no, I'm sorry. It's not you. It's me. I'm, I'm really, I feel bad. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, this is pure eagle energy. And people love that eagle energy, or enough people did. Um, but the reality is that he's turned that dial up so much that now he has turned a lot of people off to him. Even those people in his party, it's been a lot of people switching and saying, I just can't do it. And and that's because his assertiveness has become aggressive. His confidence has become arrogance and even narcissistic at times. And so, so when you hear him say, only I can fix it, or I know better than the generals, or I know, I know about this better than anyone. Those are very, you know, very confident statements, but the dials turned up a little too much. And, and so what was his greatest asset could now be his greatest liability. And, and, and we saw this. Th- in fact, I think he's pretty self-aware of this. He, it, there was a interview with Chris Wallace and where Chris Wallace had said to him, you know, Dr. Fauci, he's got his approval ratings higher than yours. And, and he said, you know, the only way I can explain it is there must be something about my personality that people don't like. I'm like, bingo, you just <laughs> nailed it. You're exactly correct. Now, if, if we ask that exact same question in regards to uh, Mr. Biden, how does his personality help him and hurt him as well? Yeah, I mean, if, clearly he's always had this parrot style it, throughout his whole career. Look, he's people on both sides have always said Joe Biden's a nice guy. It, put politics aside. You hear people just throughout his career have said he's just a genuinely down to earth, folksy kind of a guy. Um, and, and that's his appeal. That's that parrot appeal. But it, his throughout his career, it's also hurt him because when parrots get excited, they make verbal gaffes. This isn't new for Joe Biden. He's done this his whole career. They get too excited and their speech center in their brain gets overexcited and the logic center in their brain shuts down and they say things they just shouldn't say. And then they have to walk it back. And, and this has happened his whole career. And I think that what they're doing is, is that if they had said, look, you've got to be the parrot. That's what can beat an eagle. Eagles and parrots can go head to head. But they have said instead, so that, okay, look, you got to slow yourself down. Let's talk slowly because when you speak too fast, you say things that get get you in trouble. So slow it down. Let's focus on empathy. Let's focus on compassion. There's an epidemic happening. There's a pandemic. There's this world is just in turmoil. America needs to see that compassion. And so that parrot style, I think, could really help him. Uh, I think he's got to get out there and when he goes in those debates, dial up that exuberance, and that energy and a charisma. But I think what he's going to dial up is the dove. And remember, 22 times in a row, eagles have beaten the dove style. So I think that could hurt him. I think they're, they're taking a path that if I were consulting that campaign, I'd say, why are you dialing up the dove? Dial up the parrot. Uh, and make sure he's he's focused, but dial that parrot energy up or else that, that dove against that eagle, that, that's a little bit scary for the Democratic Party. When we talk about the debates that are forthcoming, do gaffes in person on that debate stage weigh more heavily, equally as heavily, or a little bit less than gaffes you may see turned into memes spun about on social media, comparing the in-person gaff 
to the gaffe that's played over and over and over on social media? Well, I think at this point, because Biden hasn't been out there in the spotlight as much, he's which I think is a very measured plan on their part to say, hey, let's minimize these gaffes. We see Biden's poll numbers going up and he's not out there and and Trump's poll numbers are going down. Let's just hey, if I don't have to take the field and they can make some unforced errors and my numbers are going up, we're putting points on the board. I'm not going to spend a lot of time out there. So we haven't seen a lot of verbal gaffes. In fact, Trump was encouraging him, get out on the campaign trail. Joe, we want to see you. Yeah, because he wanted him to make mistakes that he could play off of. I think if he makes, if Biden does make mistakes, they're going to play the narrative that it's not, this is a verbal gaffe like Biden has done throughout his career, but rather he's losing touch and he's getting older and they're going to play that narrative. And so I think a verbal gaffe for Biden on the debate stage could be damaging because they're going to spin it as age as opposed to spin it as, hey, this is what parrots do. He's done it his whole life. He just did it again. He's not going to get that pass this time. There, There's clearly a machine out there waiting to capture those gaffes. Post-election effectiveness. Does someone's personality directly determine how effective they will be as president of the United States. You know, it's funny. I, I often ask people, I say, so when you think of CEOs, look look, look at the, the top of the org chart in a company, and then we'll play it, rewind it back over to the presidential campaign. Uh, when, when you think of a CEO, I'll ask you this question, gut response. If I were to say to you, what is your gut response? Which style do you think is the typical CEO? What would you say? Eagle. Right. It's the gut answer. And so most people think, well, that's probably the style that. So if you have eagles, they're going to be better CEOs. They're going to be better presidents. Absolutely not true. Any style can be a great president. Any style can be a a great leader. I mean, if you looked at look at Mount Rushmore, right, you've got you've got uh, what's it? You got Lincoln up there. Who's the dove? Right. You've got Washington up there. Uh, He's more of an owl, secondary eagle. Right. I mean, you've got. Jefferson, right? Jefferson's up there. We've got more owl. We've got Teddy Roosevelt was more eagle and dove. I mean, actually, kind of, it's not a group of eagles up there, right? right? And right. So, so kind of interesting. And and if you look at, at, look at companies, look at CEOs, take somebody like a Steve Jobs, eagle, self-made billionaire. Howard Schultz from Starbucks, he's the dove. Someone like, uh, let's see. Uh, a Bezos, a Gates. Bill, Bill Gates. Bill Bezos, more Eagle, Bill Gates, more Owl, Richard Branson, more Parrot. These are four self-made oh. billionaires, four or five of them, and they're all different styles. I've got another. Uh, one more CEO, uh, Rosenberg. Merrick. There you go. <laughs> Merrick Rosenberg, I'm, I'm where are you? Eagle. You are the Parrot Eagle, right? I'm a Parrot Eagle. There you go. You look at somebody like an Oprah who displays all four styles equally well. I mean, she's another great chameleon. But yeah. what it shows us is that it's not like you have to be an Eagle to be a successful CEO or a successful president. Uh, any style can be a great president. We've had some, some look at, look at uh, Lincoln is widely considered the greatest president in US history. When, you, when presidential scholars rank order the presidents from best to worst, yes. Lincoln is always at the top. And he was a dove. And in fact, he was a dove parrot. The secondary, he was a funny guy. There are joke books of all the jokes that, that uh, Lincoln used to say. I mean, he's, he was a funny guy. And so, so look at that. The dove is the, is the greatest president in history. We really should start a campaign to re-recognize Grover Cleveland, one of the more forgotten about presidents in U.S. history. 
discussion for another time, I think, though. Yes. Right? <laughs> so uh, can a individual's personality outshine or overshadow the message that the campaign team is trying to sell? Yeah. It, it, look, if you've got an eagle and a parrot personality, it, you all you need is that charisma and energy. They don't need a lot of content. If you go back and look at a lot of eagles and parrots, there's not a lot of meat behind what they say they're going to do. If you look at look at the last election, we're going to build a wall. How are you going to do it? Don't worry about that. <laughs> we'll just we're going to do it. Right. It's like yes. he never yes. provided a lot of detail. And 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 it didn't matter. It just was it just created momentum. People started chanting that build the wall. Right. I mean, it was just it created energy. And eagles and parrots have that that charisma and energy is what moves the campaign. It's what moves the people. When we think about out-of-character desperation, when someone reaches that point where they feel they have nothing to lose and they stray away from their natural type, their natural personality type, and they, they hit the gas and they amp something up that's not inherent in who they are, could it be effective and successful? Or... Is there a greater likelihood of failure? It's a greater likelihood of failure. I, I remember this one moment. So you've got you've got Al Gore, very owl. And, and, Qu- and coincidentally, he was another one of those people behind the scenes. People said he was a very funny guy, that he was very parrot behind the scenes. He was very loose and relaxed. And then the camera turned on and he was like, you know, he'd wave and you know, he would <laughs> high five people. And it was like, Just like I have to line up for this. Yes. <laughs> he yes. just was very stiff. And, and there was this moment where, he just needed to be humanized. And so, and once, and by the way, once the campaign says you need to be humanized, it's all over. Some other people who <laughs> campaign literally use that exact word. I kept finding it in my research. Uh, Bob Dole needed to be humanized. Mitt Romney, uh, John Kerry, Michael Dukakis, Al Gore. Notice something? These are all owls who all lost who needed to be humanized. Hillary Clinton. And so there was this moment in the, in a, the debate where, um, uh, actually, no, it wasn't. In I think debate. they even it? said that about uh, McCain to a point, too. McCain, yeah, he needed to be humanized, right? And, and so, but what, what happened was with Al Gore, he's at the Democratic National Convention. At the end, Tipper Gore walks out. Here comes his wife, and he he looks at her, and he grabs her in his arms, and he pulls her in, and he kisses her, and kisses her, and kisses her, and kisses her, and, kisses her, and it hurt. It viscerally hurt to watch it was definitively I mean, not a gone with the wind moment by any stretch oh, of the imagination oh because he was trying to be like personal and humanized yes. and oh it was like watching your grandparents kissing like that you're like no <laughs> shield my eyes. I, can't, I can't look <laughs> and it just hurt because he was trying to be that very personable parrot dove and no you know, he needed to just embrace who he was. It was what it was. Uh, sometimes if you're trying to be someone who you're not, it just doesn't work. Does personality ultimately determine how popular someone will be as president? Uh, to a degree, it does. I mean, look, remember what I said earlier. You, you take these that parrot eagle style. It tends to be a very popular style. Uh, you know, it, it's they've got charisma. They've got energy. They've got confidence. Uh, you know, JFK, who had the, the highest average approval rating of any president in history. We had only three other parrot-eagle or eagle-parrot combos that FDR, uh, Reagan, Bill Clinton, they were the top three highest Gallup approval ratings of any president. Coincidentally, 
some of the lowest Gallup, Gallup approval ratings, Truman, Eagle, LBJ, Eagle. I mean, we had had a couple Eagles and they all kind of fell to the bottom of the list. And, and George H.W. Bush was at the bottom as well. And so when you ranked ordered all those presidents from about 1937 on, that's where Gallup started doing approval ratings. And, and so there, there's something about our personality that, that you can be very likable. Doves also are very likable. Someone like a, an Eisenhower. I mean, his slogan was, you know, like, I, I like Ike. And his second time around, it worked so well. I still like Ike. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just that yeah. it's not, I mean, is that a dove? So would, would an eagle be like, I like Donald? You know, it's like, that doesn't work. No. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It works for the dove, though. And so without a doubt, our, our likability is impacted by our personal personality, for sure. Merrick, why did you write Personality Wins? Why did you write this book? There were two reasons. Uh, one, I, I spend my days in, in corporate America, traveling around the world, teaching people about personality styles. And I wanted to be able to give them a place where they could see the personalities playing out in action. And, and I thought it would be nice to be able to, to see themselves in that American story. You'd look at a president and you'd see like, oh, I'm the eagle. I'm so much like that. Or I would have done that. Or I'm an owl. I never would have said that. Uh, and so you almost see yourself in the story. I wanted people to learn not just about the presidents, but to learn about themselves. But the second reason was I wanted people to really look at themselves and look inwardly and say, am I voting for personality or am I voting for platform? And maybe you're voting against your better wishes, but you're voting for something that's drawing your attention. Because I'm not saying that eagles and parrots make better presidents. I'm saying that eagles and parrots win the presidency. And we may be missing out on some great candidates because we have a personality bias and we're drawn to certain styles. I want to ask you about you real quick. We danced around this in the beginning and in the bio at the start of things. It was announced to everyone just a touch. But I, I have to ask you, in your opinion, why do you feel uniquely qualified to be in this moment at this time being the right person to write this book? Well, you know, I've worked with more than 100,000 people teaching people about their personality styles. And throughout that time, I got to see everybody from Fortune 100 CEOs to entry-level staff uh, to people in just about every industry. I mean, more than half the Fortune 100 companies. And having had that experience, I got to see how personality impacted people's success and how personality hurt people how it got in their own way. And, and I wanted people to be able to step into the power of their personality, to, to be who they are and not tr try to be something else. And, and I've helped a lot of people do that. So it's time to share that with the world. Yeah, but you love your politics, too. I mean, like you were talking about, the dipping back to the Georgetown uh, education, bringing that forward, blending the worlds together. You're, you're bringing a sense of fun to a topic of history that some people just don't find fun. You really yeah, are. Yeah, you know. I would say, you know, one of the, the nicest comments I've gotten from people over the past three months with the book is this is the most fun presidential history book I've ever read. Yeah, uh, because I think you see yourself in the story. It's fun to look at them as eagles and parrots and doves and owls. And, and I hope people enjoy that. I hope people have a fun time reading it. And, and that we, I tried to put like the little moments, the human moments, not just the big stories that, that OK, that characterizes the essence of the presidency. It's those funny little moments that you look at and go, oh God, that is so parrot. Like that is, or that is so eagle. That The stories that a lot of people never heard because they're just little moments yes. as opposed to this is 
a major news story. And so I think people are going to get to know them. I, I had a lot of people who've said to me, I never knew that story. I've never heard that. And, and I was hoping that that would happen. They'd get to know the presidents in a very human way. What is the biggest takeaway at the end of the day from Personality Wins? I think the biggest takeaway is, are we applying the big assumption in elections and are we applying it in our lives? And the big assumption is, if it's important to me, I believe that it's important to other people. And and are you as an individual, just like presidents do, are you imposing your personality on others or are you treating others the way they need to be treated? That hit home. That's strong. That really is, Merrick. Ultimately, at the end of the day, is that part of the cautionary tale? Do you have a cautionary tale for future presidents to consider? I think the cautionary tale is to make sure that if you want to be a successful candidate, you can't stay stuck in one style. You have to make sure you're appealing to everyone. And while who you are is going to shine through, if you're a parrot, you can share some statistics and share some plans. If you're a dove, you can dial up that assertiveness and directness. If you're a parrot, you can be, or if you're an owl, you can dial up enthusiasm. If you're an eagle, you can dial up empathy. Anybody can display any behavior. And that if we consciously understand that I need to connect with everyone, then they connect with everyone. If they don't, the cautionary tale is just go out there and, and stay stuck in your style and you're going to only reach a sliver of the population. Ladies and gentlemen, Merrick Rosenberg, Personality Wins. You can find this on Amazon, Google Books. Merrick, it's pretty much everywhere right now, correct? It's out there, yes. Can I get the audiobook with you reading it, or is that not an option yet? The audiobook is coming, actually. It'll be out, and it's coming very soon. It's it's almost out. Okay, good, good, good. Big fan of the audiobooks. Helps with commuting, but I have to be honest, Merrick, commuting from the living room to the basement for daily work that commute is very short, so I'm, I'm probably going to go with the paperback. I, I, go. I'll stick with that. I, my, my big present to myself at the beginning of the, this entire process was a hammock, and I have sat in that hammock and listened to many books. So you still can listen <laughs> to go get a hammock. <laughs> Understood and noted. Uh, the debates are coming up this next week. Prior to that, ladies and gentlemen, it's not too late to make sure that you hop out to grab this book at one of your favorite stores out there. Merrick, what are some of the best ways people could reach you and or find you online, sir? I go to takeflightlearning.com. And if you want a daily dose of of bird-style wisdom, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Merrick R. So it's at M-E-R-R-I-C-K-R. And if you're on LinkedIn, I also have, that's more of the business world, dose of bird-style wisdom. Uh, Connect with me on LinkedIn. I am easy to find. Uh, take flight learning and you will discover all the different training programs that we offer and, uh, and how we help companies to grow. I want to thank you very much for your time and, and returning to HR talk. It's been a pleasure and we do look forward to doing this again in the future. If you're okay with that. Love it. Fantastic. All the best to you, sir. Take care, dude. Okay. We need to have him back. We need to have him back post election and we need him to run through because I get it. He didn't say anything about who he thinks is going to win. I like how he started talking about how he kept talking about just how that 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 system would work. I would love to invite him back to the show to kind of walk us through um, all these debates and how a, they got to whoever won in the White House. So you're so, talking so about like of, a like a leadership postmortem, kind of like, OK, this we're, we're on the backside of everything that's about to happen. Uh, we are now into 2021. 
let's do a postmortem on this. Let's dissect that and try to figure it out a little bit further. That's what you mean? Absolutely. And, and how we can apply this in the business world. One of the things he said that I really, really enjoyed, uh, that I really agree with, is that you can't just stick to one style, right? If you, re- if you want to lead and you want to uh, get the attention and the loyalty of people, you have to understand that people have different needs, different wants, different personality styles, and you have to appease or appeal to each and every one of them to have everybody follow you. If you know how to do that, he's right. You're going to win. Because you're going to win the hearts and minds of everybody from different walks of life to follow you, even talking about topics that may be uncomfortable for some. But if you make it comfortable for people to talk about it by appeasing to their personality styles, that shit is going to win. That was awesome, bro. And a a hammock. How come you don't have a hammock? Oh, I have a hammock. I I personally don't use it all the time. I I should have divulged a little bit more, but. Yeah, I don't have a hammock like his hammock. He's got a really good hammock. Um, it sounds like his hammock is only good uh, to listen to books. <laughs> so we need to get him a better one. <laughs> that was awesome, bro. I, that was that was a really good segment. Um, well, actually, you know what? I, last week when I said that I was on assignment, I told you I was going to have some great things coming out this week. Yeah, you did, bro. It's yeah. been a good week for HR Talk. That's all I got to say. That is true. That I'm definitely picking that book up. Um, is he going to send us a couple of autographed copies? Is that what he's going to do now? I think we might be able to obtain those from him when we finally do meet up for a beer outside Philly. And pay Amazon for it. Got it. Okay, I got no, you. No, 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 no. Like, we take our ton tavern trip. We probably meet up with him over there type thing. Uh, know what I mean? That would be awesome. Yeah, it really would, would. Yeah. You know Tun Tavern isn't there, right? You know People what People know about. what Sun Tavern is. People don't know what Sun Tavern is. It's okay. Let's, Let them know. Let's, it's okay. No, no, hey, no, no, no. I've got, you it up. I've you got brought, something no, more important you, for you. Than Tun Tavern? It's time for Current Events. Current Events, ladies and gentlemen. Current Events this week brought to you in part by Ricky's Love of Steak. Gotta love that steak. Gotta love that steak, Rick. <laughs> what steak? The steak that that, like the end of a commercial. Gotta love the steak. Gotta love that steak. Gotta love that steak. Hey, uh, this first uh, this first story that I have for you is coming from visualcapitalist.com. The, some of these articles about leadership were tweeted out by myself and the program over the weekend here. Very strong pieces. This was put together by Katie Jones. As always, educational informational right here. We'll give you a high gloss overview. Stop by visualcapitalist.com for the complete article and if you need a link find us on twitter you can find that right away title of the article here is the new rules of leadership five forces that are currently shaping expectations of ceos very timely here for us as we talk about leaderships and personality traits and she says here in the new rules of leadership that leaders need to embrace five key things Because the world is being reshaped. Leaders need to constantly stay one step ahead of the transformative forces that impact businesses on a broader scale. And she's outlined five key drivers that are changing what it means to be a leader in today's world. I'm going to hit the key five, the core content. You'll have to stop by and read the article for that. But the first one she has here is transformative technologies, Rick. Simply put, over the last few decades, a lot of technologies have emerged. A lot of stuff is changing. 72% of CEOs believe the next three years will be more critical for their industry than Mm. the previous 50 years. 
transformative technology. One of the first key points here. Second key point, geopolitical instability, geopolitical risks, such as trade disputes or civil unrest. It could have a a catastrophic impact on a business's bottom line, or maybe even if their doors are still open in a particular city, right? Statistics here say, although 52% of CEOs believe geopolitical landscape is having a significant impact on their companies, only a small portion say that they have taken active steps to address these risks. So something to consider there. Third point on her list, revolutionizing the working environment, future work. We're talking about remote work. We're talking about While physical, repetitive, or basic cognitive tasks carry a higher risk of automation, the critical work that remains will require human interaction, creativity, and judgment. Doesn't matter if you're in the office or doing it from home. And I'm going to be one to tell you right away. I I put a tweet out about this during the week, Rick. When you're talking about the adaptation of automation, the adaptation of technology moving forward in these worlds, you still need highly skilled individuals that know the core business, but they can also speak that other language. Mm-hmm. Reach out to Biesco. We could help. We could help transform the mindsets of those individuals that need to learn a little bit more about the technology and kind of bring things full circle. We're here for you. The fourth one, delivering diversity. Diversity and inclusion can serve as a path to engaging employees. And leaders are being asked to step up and deliver like never before. 77% of people feel that CEOs are personally responsible for leading change on important social issues. And do those deliveries meet the need? So continuing to deliver on diversity. And the last, uh, last bullet point she has here is a repurposing corporations. 84... 84- 84% of people expecting CEOs to inform conversations and policy debates on one or more pressing issues from job automation to their impact of globalization. CEOs have the potential to transform their organization by galvanizing employees on the topics that matter to them. So repurpose the corporation, hmm. deliver value to customers, invest in employees, deal fairly and ethically with your suppliers, support communities, generate long-term value for your essential internal and external stakeholders lead into the future. New rules for leadership, five forces shaping expectations of CEOs. I only scratched the surface. This was written by Katie Jones, visualcapitalist.com. Stop by, check out that article. Rick, what do you think about that? Transformative technology. That's the one that really stood out to me because um, it's, Technology, as soon as you buy a smartphone, as soon as you put you open that package and you turn it on, it's already out of date. So as technology advances, so does how quickly it changes. So you have to be able to adjust to that as a leader to see how, how you can capitalize on all that new technology. Look at where we are today. Look at where we are today, JC, in comparison to 20, 30 years ago when it comes to the Internet, when it comes to how apps and smartphones have changed, literally changed our lives Brother, and saved our lives as well. Let me, t- let me talk to you about that one real quick. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but back in the broadcast industry, while we were going through the digital transition in the early 2000s leading up to the mids to the, to the late mm-hmm. 2000s, early 2010s there, there was an entire extremely highly skilled crew of people known as your engineers, your master control board operators, people that would 
maybe push and pull cards and play tapes and make sure the programs ran specifically at the time that they were supposed to run. And as automation took hold further and further, and more of these tapes became digital, these people were quickly finding themselves out of jobs. But what the industry did not do, what leaders did not do, was transform the skill set of those employees. They let them go. They let 30, 40 years of experience walk out the door for the sake of, ah, we got the the magic computer box. It's going to take care of everything today. Well, it doesn't. And that's where you need to invest in your people and need to invest in those yep. skill sets and keep that around. Transform the way that they think and move forward. Yes, Rick. So look, here, here's so I'm getting goosebumps here. So you're right. The the organization really needs to invest in the training and making sure that the talent they have right now, how do you capitalize that and you change it to what the future of the organization is going to look like? However, that responsibility does not fall solely on the employer. The employee has to be cognizant of that as well and take a look at what kind of skill set they have and where that skill set is going to be valued in 20 years or 10 Absolutely. years. Absolutely. Right now, five years. Yes. They have to take that step as well and not rely 100% of the employer to take care of that for them. You're right in what you said, right? But again, it's changing like crazy. JC, when you and I were in the Marine Corps, real do you quick, remember? Though, real quick huh? about your point on that. There's there's a fine line there nowadays, though, too, right? Because as an employee, you may have been able to turn to your employer in the past to say, I want to invest in my skill set. I want to do more with this. And here's the reason why. And this is how it's going to benefit the bottom line and what we do. And they would help pay for it. Yeah. Now, in the post covid world, where are those training dollars? They're not there. You're really on your own when it comes to trying to push forward to learn more about these things. No, absolutely. Because those training dollars are not there because they're reallocating those training dollars to, I don't know, hand sanitizer and mask dollars. <laughs> no, man. They're, I mean, trying to, they're probably trying to pay for your salary because business is down. Yeah, uh, it is. Depending on what you do. It, it, well, you, you, but you, as, you as the employee, you as the holder of the talent, you need to know where that's going to lead up and how flexible can you possibly be, JC? If you care, and that's the point, you have to care. You have to care about yourself. You have to care about your job. You have to care about these things. If you don't care and you're not going to change with the industry, then, well, maybe you're just going to be giving up in the next five to ten years if you're not looking forward, right? I don't think it's just caring. I could care about my job, but if I don't know where it's going to end up in five years, that's what I need to know. Well, caring about your job today the way it is. Correct. Correct. So if I care about it and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that in five years I'm going to be out of a job. Boo-hoo me. You either say boo-hoo me or you go out there and get that skill set. Let me ask you you a question. Let me ask you a question, HR guys. So then if you take it. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You put something on the, uh, I don't know if it was you or the intern, you put something on Instagram, I thought it was, from HR Talk about Google saying they don't require. I have, or, that, I have that article coming up momentarily. Go ahead. Uh, uh, well, you know what? Then I'll wait. I'll wait for that because because that one is really interesting. And it, you know what? Can you play that right now? Can no, you, can but you? momentarily I will because I have a question for you. Well, we're talking about this, when you're talking about the HR generalist to the HR specialist to the HR business partner to the HRIS manager to the this, that, the other, is there still room in the future for that differential between the specialist, the generalist, and the standard format that you're used to seeing? I don't know. I don't know. Here's why. Uh, JC, could you have envisioned... Could you see it changing? 
Of course, oh, absolutely. Me too. I just don't know where. I just, I just don't know where it's going to change, right? Unless I do a little bit more research into that. A generalist role right now, right, is 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 the jack of all trades. Not necessarily the master of 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 none, but the jack of all trades. Right. Especially specialized in one specific area. We don't know right now if that generalist position is going to be more or less valuable later on. We just don't know that unless you take a deep dive into the culture of your organization and how your organization is responding to the market change and how your organization is paying attention to the customer demand. And then if, if you take a look at that, if you take a look at the generalist and you repurpose and reposition a little bit more like a, quote, business partner with more HRS uh, tech expertise and experience, you're kind of redefining the role of what the standard generalist is and then now the salary brackets don't line up and then you're more valuable in a different way well let's do this hold on let's do this let's not talk about the generalist role let's talk about the recruiting manager right 10 15 years ago dude that's indeed but but, now is indeed (laughs) linkedin right now 10 15 years ago it was monster.com and the only thing you did was just submit a resume into their database and somebody else sees it, there you go, have a conversation. AI in that perspective was newborn. It was not virtually non-existent. They still had algorithms, but now they have algorithms that are, it's, they can emulate a human thought process, which is freaking scary, <laughs> right? So you as a recruiter who's been in the game for 30 years, what are you going to do? Are you going to go ahead and learn how AI works? Are you going to get um, go in there and learn how to take that data and how to articulate that data to help your business partner get to where they need to go from a recruiting perspective? Or are you just going to sit there, cross your arms, and boohoo on me? So that's the choice that recruiting manager has to make. Question. So yes. if you're the director, you're a VP, you're someone mm-hmm. that's seeing the trend that's taking place, and you've got some rock stars on your team that are currently holding those roles that you just described. Do you coach them? Do you bring them along? Do you own that process and take take stock in that leadership aspect of things and say, look, industry is heading down this path. Why don't you take a look at this over here? Maybe take a course I, or two in this here. We would have that conversation after I, as a director, have a conversation with the lead, with the leader of the organization and where he or she wants that business to be in five years. I want you to tell me, Mr. Mrs. CEO, where do you see this culture this organization in five years. And if that CEO can articulate that to me in a way that it makes sense, that I fully understand how that connection is made from the services and products they make to the talents um, in the organization, then I'm able to have a conversation with my team to say, hey, you need to be on this side, you need to be on that side, and I'm going to give you the training to make sure you're successful in that later on. How many VPs, directors, managers out there are thinking forward like this that are pushing those questions upward? Because you're not hearing it coming down. I mean, these discussions about leadership and, and personality traits associated with it, these are kind of old hat, but at the same time being reinvented once again, as everything is in HR, right? Being yeah. reinvented and spun back out here in 2020 as the dumpster fire burns. <laughs> JC, uh, here's the best analogy. I, it, it, some organizations do that. Some VPs do that. Some don't. But then you got very few who go so over the top. It's absolutely ridiculous. Let me give you this example. Have you ever seen a Little League game where one team is just so much better than the other that a football game, a peewee football game is like uh, the score is eight, like 80 to five or 80 to like uh, to to a seven? 
you're like, why, why didn't you stop at 20? Because they go so far above and beyond. That's exactly that, um, how companies like Google, how uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter and Netflix are treating this right now. They are so forward thinking. Everybody else is left in the, the dust, specifically Google, where they are. They create some amazing, amazing products, Apple as well. And they don't require a college degree at all. They just want you to show the work. They don't want to see what you earned education wise. They want to see what you can do with that information. Go ahead. I see you want to ask something. (laughs) Your second current event story here. It's slightly older. But it still plays such a key role in everything that we're doing and talking about on today's program. It is time to to drag this one back out. This came out on July 29th, written by David Leibowitz. Medium.com, you don't need college anymore, says Google. Subheader, if you can earn $93,000 a year after taking a $300 course, then what's the future of higher education? HR Talk did tweet this out. We did receive a a comment that really wasn't a fan too much. And then also a comment that was absolutely in support of this. Ricky, um, as we get through this read here, if you could have the Twitter ready to kind of bring those up. Yeah, because I want to see what that comment was. So Google announced new professional career certificates that can be completed in six months to help Americans obtain high growth job opportunities. They also signaled to job seekers that they would treat these certificates, which require no prior experience of undergraduate credentials as the equivalent of a four-year degree. The equivalent of a four-year degree. I'm pausing so we could let that sink in for a minute right there. That's uh-huh. so very strong. Google's new certification programs, uh, back on July 14th, they did launch the professional certification programs in data analysis, project management, and UX design to be hosted on Coursera. Through the platform, uh, they are charging a monthly fee of $49, and Google will provide 100,000 needs-based scholarships to cover costs and will be awarding over $10 million in grants to certain nonprofits that partner with workforce development to women, veterans, and underrepresented Americans. The quote from Google reads, In our hiring, in our own hiring, we will now treat these new career certificates is the equivalent of a four-year degree for related roles. Google lists the medium annual wage for each career track with a high of $93,000 for the project management program. According to Google, 80% of learners that complete the IT support specialist certification either landed a new job or earned a raise. Prior experience in higher education are not required as a prerequisite for the courses. And once completed, typically in three to six months, participants may have a crack at a job within the tech giant itself. The article goes on for quite a ways, talking about the benefits of the program and the variations there within. But, Ricky, from that leadership perspective, it takes a lot for an organization to embrace the future, to change, for those proper leadership styles to come forward, to then turn around and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to value that as much as I do a four-year degree. Right? I'm going to correct you on something. They're not embracing the future. They're inventing it. Think about that for a second. No, no, no. I didn't say Google was embracing it. I said it takes a, if you want to change, it takes a CEO to embrace the future to do it. 
and they're inventing it. You have to invent it, right? I was talking about Google, but CEOs as well. Yeah. You do have to invent that yourself, well, right? Well, the, sto- the story here is Google invented it. So now do you want to adopt it? Google invented the internet? I thought that was... Holy crap. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back <laughs> to HR Talk. Ricky Baez, put the cocktail down. Let's talk about this real quick. <laughs> so in the article, look, look. Google is talking about the fact that they help make this yeah. certification program, right? That is correct. Okay, and, and, and then well, they're valuing that certification equal to a degree. So then if you're a CEO and you're not part of Google and you're at Ted's warehouse, okay, you're shaking your head no. So you disagree. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm shaking my head no because we, everybody automatically assumes a degree has X amount of value, and it does not. And it, it, it's and, and this is what people need to understand. Yes, that a degree is a tool, and it makes you valuable. Damn it, it only makes you valuable if you freaking use it. That's the only value it has. A hammer only has a value when a carpenter builds a house. A hammer only has some kind of value when somebody uses it as a murder weapon. A hammer in the toolbox doing absolutely nothing has no value whatsoever. So for everybody that's out there saying that, or actually one person on here responded to our our Twitter feed, Jessica L. Benjamin. Um, in response to that I, story, I've, I've got to I got to take your audio down. I I I know you're a passionate man, dude. You, you, you got me in. No, you're right? really so you're honest to God yelling. So, okay. so I'm I'm just right. patting your audio down so, and go ahead. I guess the uneducated make better consumers. So I want to respond to that because I, I I can only assume what she means by that, right? But I guess she she is implying that now since. An organization like Google is not going to require or not not require. They are equating the value of a four year degree to a three hundred dollar course. I guess she has an issue with that because now now that translates to people being uneducated. JC, let me ask you, what does education mean to you? I'll answer your question for you. Education. It's a it's a way of learning your ABCs in kindergarten, right? That's exactly what it is. It's learning ABCs in kindergarten. Look, at the end of the day, education, it's it. it it, it, it really isn't how people use it. People get upset because the norm is being disrupted as far as what a four-year degree is. And I get it. it. People spend a lot of money on it, and they don't want the money and time and effort that they put into it to be devalued by a radical thought process. That's what happens, right? So Google is spot on. Pay for results, not for the skill set you have. The skill set you have, yes, it is important, but the skill set has to be used. So you pay for it, you do it, and you value it, you put it to use, and you'll see how much money, how much more value organizations are going to see that. Hats off to Google and hats off to these forward-thinking companies for taking it that route. It's time for Florida Man Story. Your Florida man story this week is coming to us from WinkNews.com. Wink News. Port Charlotte man. He was arrested, Rick. He was arrested for battery after slapping his girlfriend with a pizza. A Port Charlotte man is facing battery charges after his girlfriend says he slapped her with a slice of pizza, according to the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office. When deputies arrived at the Port Charlotte scene, the victim told them her boyfriend, 56-year-old Sean Metcalf, Smacked her in the face with a piece of pizza. She said she was taking some things to the the trash, including a pizza box that she thought was empty. 
Once she was nearly out the door, Metcalf told her not to throw things away. He got very angry about this. The victim said Metcalf began to yell at her, telling her the pizza was his dinner and that she needed to stop throwing his things away. She then proceeded to throw out the box of pizza. She still thought it was empty. Well, she threw that pizza box back into the room at him. And when she did, slices of pizza went everywhere. Metcalf then became very angry, very, very mad. He approached her, picking up a slice of pizza, and hit her in the face and the chest with the pizza. She then called the cops. Deputies say when they made contact with the victim, she had grease and red sauce and food toppings on her face and chest, as well as in her hair. Metcalf told the cops he lost his cool and yelled at her, corroborating the altercation. However, he says nothing ever became physical between the two. He had no idea how pizza got all over the victim. He was arrested for domestic battery, and a non-contact order was placed between him and the victim. I'm torn. I'm torn. Because if the pizza she was throwing out was pineapple pizza, I'm with her. (laughs) I'm with her 100%. But if the pizza she was throwing out was a delicious meat lover's pizza, I mean, like, that was made with love. (laughs) I'm with him, dude. I'm with, so I'm torn. I don't know. I don't know how to... Could you imagine, like, you go ahead, you, you order yourself a pizza, you set it down, the box is, like, maybe got two slices left, you had a long work day, they're throwing the pizza out on you, and the next thing you know is, like, where are you going with my pizza? At least communicate that, right? He didn't communicate it. He didn't communicate no. it effectively or properly, I think, right? No, he uh, he did not. So I wonder, you know what? Um, I'm going to go ahead and reach out to that police department because I want to see if they're as divided as I am on this. Because <laughs> once they show up to the scene, right? Like, okay, let's see, let's see this evidence. Like, oh, no shit. There's pineapple in that piece. I get it. <laughs> right? And then next thing you know, the union gets involved. And next thing, it's, it's this whole thing. No, dude, I get it. I do. Because I, exactly how you say it. You, you have leftovers. You're working all day. And you are thinking all about getting home and eating that beautiful slice of pizza that you've been dreaming about all day. You get there and it's gone. That'll piss me off too. Right? Has right? that ever happened to you when you're waiting for something and you get home, somebody ate it? No, it's, like, it's, ah. it's kind of been the other way where like, you know, you go to the, uh, the lunch room and then next thing you know, someone ate half your lunch and left the other <laughs> half there with the bite marks in it and a note. Thanks. Yeah. That doesn't work out well, you know? And the worst part now is your lunchroom is literally your own kitchen. So that's a, that's an even bigger debacle, you know? Oh, and even if it's your own kitchen, somebody left a note that says thanks. Right. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> well, that sucks. Nah, that was, that's a hard story, man. I don't know where to go with that one. Hey, we are at that time in the show to uh, get this all wrapped up and out the door. Great show today with Merrick Rosenberg talking about the personality traits. It's going to be interesting to see what happens here with the... Uh, with the presidential debates this week. I yeah. think you've got a fantastic idea talking about the postmortem as well. I think that's going to be great in the future. So final thoughts over to you, please. Final thoughts. Um, look, it's um, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about this book. I am going to pick it up. I am going to read it because personality styles is nothing new, but it's something that we keep learning more and more as we keep investigating and delving into more and more as time goes on. So to, to see the idea or the theory that you can predict 
an election based on these is to me it is it, it's it's fascinating and how to translate that into the business world. But folks, at the end of the at the end of the day, as you as a leader, what it takes is for you to get to know your people. Personalities aside, invest time into your employees, not just in their talents, into their likes, their dislikes, them as a human being. Once you invest that time in them, you'll be able to see what kind of people you have, what kind of uh, 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 talent you have there with you. You have that much better of a team. Boom. Mr. Bias, what are some of the best ways people can find the program and find you, please? HR Talk. We are on TikTok. We are on Instagram, Facebook, everywhere. There's social media. I think I'm even going to do a MySpace page. That's still around. Tom will welcome us back. I'm still going to do that. We are going to promote the living crap out of that. Um, yes, and also anywhere you can find your podcast with a platform that you use, let us know how you like the show. Give us a like, share us. We really appreciate it. On behalf of Ricky Baez, Senior Executive Lucy, the entire team here at HR Talk, it's been my pleasure. I'm JC. Drive safe. Have a good night.